0: Hi everyone, and welcome back to another episode of our Ex-Devotional podcast. I had to change some words in the opening line there, because some people texted me saying that I sound too much like pastor. We don't want to deviate too much from the original style, so that it seems like pastor's never away. Let's just hope he remembers to return. Anyway, thanks for staying tuned. It's truly been a pleasure and privilege sharing insights of the word. And I've learned a lot, including how terrible my recorded voice sounds. Your ears must be hurting by now. But the very good news is, your misery's ending soon. The original will be returning next Monday, so continue to stay tuned. Now, without further delay, let's start and... Today we follow Paul to Caesarea, his first stop on his long journey to Rome. We'll be reading from Acts chapter 23 verses 23 to 35. Acts chapter 23, verses 23 to 35. Let's pray. Lord, we pray for our hearts and minds to be open to receive your words of truth so that we may reflect your nature in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 23, verses 23 to 35. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, Get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at 9 tonight. Provide horses for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. He wrote a letter as follows. Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency, Governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews, and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him, for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin, and I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law. But there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So the soldiers, carrying out their orders, took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day, they let the cavalry go on with him while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered Paul to be kept under guard in Herod's palace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today, let's talk a little bit more about the Roman commander. And we find out that his name was revealed in the letter to the Roman governor. And in verse 26, we found that his name was Claudius Lysias. Now, Lysias was an intriguing character. I almost feel for him and feel stressed for him. How he always had to scramble to protect Paul from the Jews. And here as we read, the final straw came when Lysias found out that the Jews were out for blood. And he had no choice but to get Paul out of Jerusalem. It's as if both their lives were tied together. And actually, it sort of is, when he first put Paul in chains and found out that he was a Roman citizen. The death of a Roman citizen under his custody would have been a massive failure of military duty and would at least cost Lysias his job. So, yes, he protected Paul for his own agenda. His job and maybe even his citizenship was on the line since he was not born a Roman, but had to buy his Roman citizenship. In comparison, Paul was born a Roman, so Paul's status was higher than him in that regard. Yet he captured Paul without proving whether Paul was guilty of anything. He even ordered Paul to be beaten and interrogated before he knew that Paul was a Roman citizen. You must imagine how stressed he was when he found out because by that time, he had already broken a few Roman laws. So all this while, Lysias was trying to find a way to exonerate himself, to remove himself of any blame when he had the opportunity. I must say though, since he knew Paul as a Roman citizen, he has been treating Paul quite well, with dignity and with respect. I think Paul's nephew being able to meet with Paul probably had a lot to do with that. He probably allowed allowed Paul to have visitors. Yes, it seems that he did it to save his own skin, but he's quite a decent commander who at least tries to do his duties well. In my book, he's better than the Jews at least. Lysias tried to keep to the law, but the Jews had total disregard of their own laws when they plotted to kill Paul. And God uses these characteristics of Lysias, whether is it to save his own skin or or him being nice to Paul. God made use of all of this and made him play, play an integral role in sending Paul on his journey to Rome. Here we see God's providence once again, and we spoke at length about this yesterday. Yesterday we focused on how the supernatural works in very natural ways. But today, we'll break it down such that we see how God's plan works in the microscopic and macroscopic ways. On the large scale, and also in the smallest, intricate details. First, let's understand the macro scale, the big picture. In the bigger scheme of things, we now understand why Paul's ministry in Jerusalem was meant to fail. Right at the start, The Gospel was preached to the Jews first, and it was largely rejected by them. Since the Jews did not want to be the salt and light for the Gentiles, it was left to men like Paul to preach to the Gentiles. And because he did that, the Jews were unhappy, and it created an uproar which led to Paul being held captive and sent to Rome. And now we know why the Gospel was preached to the Jews first, then the Gentiles in that order, and why it was rejected. So that all these are done, so that Paul would be captured and sent to Rome. Now, some can argue, why can't God just make the Jews be open to the gospel right at the start? Then the Jews can be loving and take care of the Gentiles, and Paul could just head straight to Rome. However, Paul had to be sent to Rome in the manner which he was sent in order to have the opportunities to preach to the rulers and to the kings, otherwise he would not have gained that easy access. This was foretold by Jesus to his disciples in Mark chapter 13, verse 9, where he says, You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to local councils and flocked in the synagogues. That's what happened to Paul. And Jesus continues by saying, On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. So here we see how God enabled these big pieces in order to bring Paul to Rome. Now, at the microscopic level, the the small intricate details, we we went through this in yesterday's podcast, and we saw the level of detail in which God used Paul's nephew, the centurion, and Lysias and the evil schemes of the Jews as well. God moving these small parts in intricate ways to attain his larger scale purposes. And now today, we read that when Paul was sent to Caesarea, God was at work again because 470 soldiers were mobilised to protect Paul. Is that even normal? Do you know how difficult it is and what a logistical nightmare it is to arrange for this amount of manpower, all just for one man? Those serving in the army in Singapore will know that this is very hard to achieve even in our modern army, on the same day itself. It had to be God's arrangement. Now, I'm going to share a pretty long story, so do bear with me. I once had this near-death experience during Reservist. There was this live firing exercise we had to do. And for those who are unfamiliar, it means we use live ammunition, real bullets in that military exercise. I know how it sounds. You're probably anticipating some near-bullet miss or something, but no. The live firing was carried out safely. The danger comes after that, but I'll get to that soon. During the morning of the exercise, there was a last-minute swap of duties. The commander who was in charge of recovering the logistics after the live firing, like, like keeping the target boards and stuff, he fell sick. So it, was, so it led to me taking over that duty. It was a new live firing exercise and our unit was pioneering the new exercise. So we did it on a totally new ground. Everything ended safely, so there I was with my team, recovering all the logistics and loading them up these huge truck-like military vehicles we call the tunnel, because they weigh more than a ton, and we ourselves eventually boarded our own tunnel to head back to the camp. Now, because the land was a new area, the driver may not have been too familiar with the roads, so he lost his way and ended up on high ground but we didn't know it was high ground. Apparently there were two parallel roads and he was on the wrong one. It was in the middle of the night, without much light in those jungle areas. After, after the driver found that he was lost, he attempted a three-point turn and was reversing the tunnel. Now, this was after a super long day and everyone would usually be asleep or snoring. but And I was seated at the back of the vehicle, also dozing off. But there was this uh, other commander, my friend, who was FaceTiming his wife and child, and that kept me awake. One of the men, at that time, happened to just drop his equipment under the seat, so I had to switch on my torchlight and, and help him retrieve it. Now, this all happened within a few seconds when the tunnel was reversing at the same time. And with the torchlight already in my hand, I decided to do something very out of my character, which is to shine the torchlight towards the ground where the vehicle was reversing towards. And note again, I'm seated at the tail end, so just imagine me at the back of this giant truck, where where the back has an opening. So hope you are able to visualize. It was very dark at that time because there was no moonlight. And when I shine to the ground, guess what I saw. There was no ground at all. The vehicle was backing into thin air, and that's when I realised we were going to fall off a cliff. Now, let me try to best describe. I was not shining the torchlight directly perpendicular to the ground, like directly downwards, but more like a 45 degree angle downwards. And now, having all the time in the world to calculate mathematically, I probably shined the light at a spot roughly four to five meters away from the tail land, and I saw no ground. That means we were falling off any time. So I screamed for the vehicle to stop, and my man was screaming also, and it took a second plus of reaction time for the driver to come to a complete stop. It was then that I shined the light directly downwards this time, and realized that we were right at the edge of the cliff. We would have fallen a good 30 to 50 metres down to the lower ground had we not stopped. I was pretty angry and upset with the vehicle commander because, in unfamiliar territory and when the driver couldn't see where he was reversing to, it was the duty of the vehicle commander to get off the vehicle and supervise the reversing. But, well, we were safe and we eventually made our way back safely and we hugged one another. I told a friend who was FaceTiming, this, I, I told him, I, I don't know why your wife and child were still awake in the middle of the night, like like 2-3am, but please thank them for all of us. What a series of events, from me being swapped to this duty in the morning, to staying awake because my friend was very loud, to me using the torchlight, and, and for some reason I had nothing better to do but to shine towards the ground where the vehicle was reversing towards. Just so amazed by how God engineers these small details, these microscopic events for us to be saved. However, it was only after some time that I realized this was not a one-time miracle, and it was meant to happen for a much bigger reason. Because we reported this, uh, this incident due to the danger of the place, the next day. Our army unit placed iron pickets around the area where we nearly fell to our death. Another batch of soldiers were going through the same exercise the next day, and what what were the odds? A different driver actually found his way to the same place we were lost at. But they survived this time because the reversing vehicle detected the iron pickets. Now, this was told to me by my my officer uh, when during the end of the reservist. That's how I knew of this. Now, this was no joke, it, it, it happened twice, so the army was scared and they made more effort in cordoning off the even the route that led to the area we were at when the sun was down. They had to do it because they had to cordon off that route because future army units will go to this area more often to do this new live firing exercise we just pioneered. And we see here how God uses every little detail. Even the fact that the, com- that the vehicle commander was lazy and not doing his job. Because if he was doing his job, we would not face that danger and we probably wouldn't make such a big hoo-ha about it and bother to report it. And maybe somewhere down the line, a group of people may not have been as lucky as us that very night. In the same way, God uses the evil deeds of the Jews. God makes use of how Lysias feared for his own position, yet also how he had some good sense for the law and respect for Paul. And sometimes in our lives, we face different obstacles and enemies and we ask God why. But these stories and experiences allow us to realize, even though we meet with evil, with challenges that frustrate us, with people that are out to get us and hurt us, we can have peace in knowing that God's sovereignty takes care of us. And this may be necessary blocks to guide us to where God intended for us to go. Uh, now, that's a long story, so thanks for bearing with me. And let's switch gears and bring our attention back to Lysias once again. This time in his letter to the to the governor, Felix. In this letter most of what Lysias accounted was true. But notice how he worded his letter in a certain way. Now, not everything is true. Most of it is true. And remember how I mentioned that Lysias was finding opportunity to remove himself from blame. And this was the perfect opportunity. He worded it in a way to exonerate himself, to remove blame from himself. Not only that, he worded it in a way to impress the governor. He claimed that he rescued Paul from the Jews after he learned that he was a Roman citizen, when in actual fact, he only found out that Paul was a Roman citizen after he put Paul in chains and after he ordered him to be flogged and interrogated. The rest of it was pretty much accurate, but he left out details of mistakes he has made. What Lysias did it's actually a very common practice amongst us. Not many may tell the truth when it puts them in a bad light. Now, I'm not talking about blatant lying, but there are times we may hide details and not reflect the actual reality in our accounts. Many times we also write or say things to impress. Maybe we, beauty- we try to beautify a report and we talk up a worker where we like to put up for a promotion. Writing a testimony or a recommendation for people. These are even lauded as very good skills. Well, I'm not saying that it's a bad thing because things like writing recommendations, you, you do want to put people in a good light and, and write it in a way to bring out their qualities while still telling the truth. But in many situations where we are asked to give an account, How accurate is our reporting? And here I'm talking about the kind of situations where our feedback is actually valuable, our our reporting leads to decisions and affect the next steps taken, whether is it to solve an issue or to improve a situation, or to be more aware whether a strategy that we are trying is effective or not. Now, statistics show that Singaporeans are quite risk averse, and are afraid of failure. And it's essential that in our education, we teach the future generations not to be scared of failure, to see if not they are afraid to try out new ideas and exercise creativity. And maybe it's due to how we view failure and how people react to failure that makes us scared to review things. But if one realizes that, number one, failure is fine, and number two, We don't even view certain things as a failure, and we are not judging. Maybe if we can be comfortable with these two things, people will be more honest. The danger is that when someone only does positive reporting, would it lead to improvement? Is our pride and our image more important? Now this may also be a spiritual battle that many of us may not realise. We know that the devil is expert at, in exploiting such situations and, and he may be whispering in our ears what we can do to portray a good image of ourselves. Now, I've had my fair share of positive reporting as well and I've came to learn that the more inclined we are to always put ourselves in a good light, the more we are a slave to the trappings of life. These trappings can be pride, money, our image, our promotions, how we are, how how we are so affected by how other people view us. Now, all, all of us do this to some extent, and I am no different. But where should the line be drawn? At which point do we say, I have to be honest here. As it affects something much bigger than myself. And that depends on what we are sacrificing. Perhaps at work, are we sacrificing the welfare of those under our charge when we do inaccurate reporting? Are we sacrificing the progress of our department? With friends, are we sacrificing our freedom of being ourselves if we always try to put up a false front? What about in church? Are we sacrificing the progress of ministries? Are we sacrificing the souls of our brothers and sisters in church? It's interesting that when I was working in schools, I realized I've never met a parent who was willing to sacrifice the progress of their child by hiding the ugly side of things when it comes to their children. I repeat again, I've never met a parent who was willing to hold back the progress of their child by hiding certain things about their child. And every one of them was always honest. Well, I heard of a few rare ones who think that their kid could do no wrong and it's the teachers who must be wrong, but that's another thing altogether. Why were the parents willing to be honest? Sometimes to the point that I feel bad for some of my students. Some parents hardly hold back at all. Now, because because they know that only by revealing the bad habits of their child, we could find the root of the problem and eventually seek to solve it. Are are, Are we able to apply then the mentality of a parent who yearns only for their child to do well during times when we account for things? Finally, when God calls us to account for things, what do we say to Him? And would our answer to other people be the same as our answer to Him? A lot to ponder today, but I encourage us to reflect more on these things and when they do happen in our lives, encourage you to revisit such questions again. Shall we pray? Father, thank you for watching over us and not sparing any effort in moulding us using your divine means. You are the ultimate strategies and some of your strategies are beyond our comprehension. We pray then that, Lord, when we meet circumstances that we do not understand and struggle with people or challenges, remind us that you make use of these things as well to shape us into your likeness and to be sought and light for other people in order to glorify your name. Lord, we pray that you continue to help us see beyond ourselves, to see your purposes in our roles that are bigger than ourselves, so that we shift our attention away from our own image and concentrate on the things that we are protecting and the people we are serving. Help us to care less about what people think of us, to be less scared of how we might be judged, when we are called to account for things. On the other hand, help us to also provide safe environments for people to feel that they can be honest. Above all, help us to have integrity and own up to mistakes if necessary. If we need to be judged by men as a result, then so be it, Lord. But we rather that than to face a worse judgement from you we rather that than to disappoint you. So we pray that your Holy Spirit continue to guide us and we pray for your word to continue to equip us as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening and we look forward to your fellowship in church on Sunday. Have a blessed day and goodbye.